This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Thomas Mayer, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you, Cheryl. Happy to be here. Oh, gosh, I'm so excited about this conversation. Thomas is up in Darwin and I'm here in freezing cold Sydney this morning, so I'm feeling very envious. I'm going to introduce you. Thomas is a Torres Strait Islander born on Larrakia country in Darwin. He worked as a union official for the Maritime Union of Australia before he became a key signatory and a campaigner for the Uluru Statement from the Heart. He travelled around Australia campaigning to enshrine a First Nations voice in the Constitution. Okay, so that gives me goosebumps always. I've read this a couple of times this morning <laughs> yeah. and it just it really does. It does come from the heart and I want to talk to you about that at length actually. More recently, he wrote and edited Dear Son. It is an absolute gorgeous anthology. That's not in my notes. I'm just saying that. And it really is beautiful. An anthology written by First Nations men about life, masculinity, culture and racism. And do you know what? I've got to say every Australian male should read this book. Oh, Beautiful. Thank you. Beautiful. So, Thomas, firstly, I want to start, talk to me about what the Uluru Statement from the Heart is. Tell us about that. Well, the Uluru Statement from the Heart is uh, has a long history. It has a history that goes before colonisation began, really, because it is the culmination of, <clears throat> of so many lessons from the history of our struggle. And, and the Uluru Statement begins, as we always should when we talk about it, in that uh, First Nations people had a, had a very happy, abundant and peaceful life here before Captain Cook came and told lies about Terra Nullius, saying that these lands were vacant and that we didn't exist. And so, uh, you know, even experts support that uh, in that how these languages have developed, uh, you know, so many hundreds of languages on one continent so close to each other um, we weren't a conquering people. We knew what land we belonged to and we were masters of dispute resolution and had advanced societies. The Uluru Statement begins there, but then it takes us through this, this long history of struggle and, and the lessons that we've learnt and, and the reality of what it is today and, very importantly, how we can take action for the solutions. Uh, the, the statement came from, uh, more contemporarily, a, uh, there were 13 regional dialogues that covered the entire continent and adjacent islands. It was Indigenous expert-led and designed. Uh, people like Arnie Pat Anderson and Professor Megan Davis, uh, who is an expert in public law. So there was a very careful formula applied to participants to ensure a range of perspectives because you can never have every Indigenous person in the country at one um, set of meetings. And we had a lot of passionate debate and discussion um, each of those 13 dialogues were three days, and then delegates were elected to go to the heart of the country at Uluru, which is where the Uluru Statement words came together 
uh, and um, and gifted to the Australian people, really. Mm. So, in a practical sense, how does it affect life day to day for Indigenous people or Aboriginal people? Well, it's it gives us hope, I think, day to day at the moment because it's a very rare opportunity for First Nations people in this country to come together in a proper um, Indigenous-led and well-formulated way to reach a consensus on what we want. You see, there is no structure uh, behind Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander advocacy um, at that level right now on a, on a national basis, on purely political and, and visionary matters. So when we came together at Uluru, that was a great opportunity and that we reached a consensus the way that we did. You know, there was around 270 of us at Uluru, as usual in politics when there's, you know, such a large group of people. Some didn't agree and walked out. There was around 20 on the second day. But 250 remained and, and endorsed it with standing acclamation. I saw people that had been in passionate debate against each other, embracing each other with tears of joy and hope, you know, like mm. it just it just came together mm. on that final day at Uluru. And it's a political feat that this country should celebrate, mm. let alone go out and, and do as it proposes. And and also too, I think sometimes when, when you're in negotiations like that, it's not 100% all the way. You take, I think, the approach is in terms of negotiation is you take bit by bit, you take this lot and then, you know, see what happens with the next lot and see what happens rather than totally, no, I'm not doing this. Yeah, I love that you say that, Cheryl. Uh, it's the way I describe what you're saying is that the, the nature of consensus is that, that not everybody gets everything that That's they want. Right. Right? Yeah. It's, it's the hard work and it's the compromise amongst the people that are to be united. And, and that's what came together at Uluru. Yeah. And it doesn't propose anything that's, that's out of this world, that's different from the way our political system, even the Western political system yeah. works right now. Um, it is a gift. It, it simply proposes that the constitution that excluded us in 1901 as a people with a special place in this country is amended to recognise that we exist to recognise that first... It's kind of outrageous that it, that it does. And that we have a voice, that we have a, a say on the matters that affect us. And, and when I say have a say, a lot of Australians are unaware. In our constitution, there is a provision um, called Section 5126. It's the race power that provides the federal parliament with the power to make special laws about a race of people. That's in, in our constitution now. And it has only been used to make special laws about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And the High Court found in a case called the Hindmarsh case that that power could be used to make laws to our detriment, not only to our benefit. And so, um, you know, to have a voice on how they use that power is a very simple and reasonable ask. It's a fair go, really. Absolutely. I want to go back, Thomas, to how you became the remarkable person you are today. <laughs> you know, how you've, you've an extraordinary career. Tell me about growing up, because with this podcast, it's really, it's the stories behind the story. So how you came to tell us your story. So I want to go right back to when you were little, where you grew up and how it is that you think, what got you to here? Well, I grew up in Darwin. Um, on Larrakia country, uh, always a very, very quiet kid. And, you know, that's not an exaggeration. It was uh, people at the at footy or, you know, at, um, at work, uh, even as a young adult, would say, you know, ask if I have a voice at all. They thought I was mute. I was so quiet. But, um, uh, you know, I played rugby league growing up. 
uh, yeah, that's that. That was my childhood. Really loved going. I, I want to talk about your childhood a little bit more. Were you surrounded mm-hmm. by your own people? Were you in at a school where? And the reason why I'm asking you that is I'm Lebanese Australian, and I grew up in Glee, which is predominantly white. And I suffered a lot of racism as a child in primary school. People laughed at my lunch. People laughed at my cardigan. Mm-hmm. People laughed at my, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I'm just wondering, did you have any of those experiences? Yeah, I totally understand. I had those experiences. Uh, at school, I was uh, one of the only Torres Strait Islanders and Indigenous people in primary school days. And, uh, yeah, those those sorts of differences, as children do, were pointed out and, and mocked. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in my outside of school, um, in sport and in, you know, amongst family, yeah, uh, you know, I was amongst my own. And Darwin's that sort of place where, you know, like... It, for example, our rugby team, uh, we were almost all Indigenous, you know. So, <laughs> Do you know, I, I've been up there a few times and only recently, like in the last 10 years, I had a friend up there and I was blown away at how diverse it was. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's very it's diverse. Very um, it's different. Really fun is, you see, it's um, the Torres Strait itself, you know, because I've got uh, my great-great-grandfather's were Malay and uh, Filipino um, mm-hmm. that went to the Torres Strait in the Perling days and, you know, intermarried. Uh, and so um, Darwin is another Perling frontier in Broome. So, you know, we all have that great mix of ethnicities and Asian influence, yeah. Mm. So for me, my experience, and I want to know if this for you happened, for the large part of my early days primary school, all I wanted to be is I just wanted to be white. Right. I wanted to, I was wished every morning I wished I had blonde hair, right? <laughs> and I had dark curly hair that was all over the place, you know. And every time I looked around me, I wanted to be somebody who I wasn't. I really didn't want people, I, I avoided speaking Arabic at all costs, you know, I was trying to be Australian. And then I think it happened in mid high school. I just thought, what am I doing? I need to embrace this because it's a gift. And did you have that? Did, did that happen to you? Yeah, I, I'm getting goosebumps now. Just, uh, but yeah, I didn't. I didn't have that. I, I to think about it, I, I wonder why actually, because I've never really thought about that. But um, I looked. You know, I was proud of Torres Strait Islander culture. I loved that we ate turtle and dugong and our traditional foods because there's plenty on the reefs here and around Darwin. And I did island dancing. You know, when I was young. Uh, you know, for weddings and and things like that. And I think as far as role models go, I looked up, you know, like uh, basketball players, you know, you know, black basketball players and and Indigenous rugby league players. So, yeah, I I didn't, I didn't have that. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, good. Well, you're a stronger person than I was. (laughs) Okay. Now tell me then. So how then did you become to be a union official? Because it seems to me you are quietly spoken. And and I can see that just from our conversation today via Zoom. Uh, You've got that beautiful quietness about you. But when I read your biography, there's a strongness there as well. I mean, you're not going to just sit around and watch it, watch things happening around you. You're going to participate and you're going to be a leader. Yeah, I've had, uh, I just can't stand injustice, you know, and, and that's always what has drawn out uh, my voice, I think. You know, and, and in the in the book, Dear Son, I, I do talk a bit about how my you know, father was towards me, quite harsh, you know, but loving at the same time. But in, in a lot of ways, it was the, the typical, you know, uh, man of, of that generation. And, uh, 
really I, I found my voice both on the footy field, um, but that was only on the field sort of thing, and then um, the union. And I'm still a, a, an official of the MUA. I'm the National Indigenous Officer. And the union just had so much uh, influence on me about how to speak up and how to speak and how to organise power for those that are, um, you know, that are most vulnerable and uh, and struggling. So, and, and and in a lot of ways to do that for more than, uh, you know, so to build power for more than your own um, benefit, you know, wages and conditions on the wharf, but actually to use that power to help um, others, mm. uh, like my own people, you know, Indigenous people. Um, there's, there's lots of examples of, of unions in this country, my union, Maritime Union, um, uh, you know, helping in the Gringy Walk, Mayfield Walkoff, for example, the Pilbara strike, um, the Nuncumbar dispute. You know, this is the list just goes on, and it's an important part of um, why Australia is the way it is today. Mm. Um, the things that we enjoy and take for granted, I mean. Mm. And so, talk to me about where the love of reading and writing came. I, I think I read somewhere that in primary school, a teacher said to you. Was it primary school or high school? I'm not sure. A teacher said to you that I think you should be a writer. Yeah, it was in high school. It was year year uh, eleven actually. Uh, Miss Arthur was her name. Don't know where she is now. I've tried to have a look, but um, I'd love to uh, say hello. But uh, I never expected to be a writer even then. Although I remember, I remember something clicking. We had a a, a test um, and we had to do descriptive writing. And, you know, there was a set amount of time to, to write a descriptive. And it just sort of clicked, okay, I just write some big fancy words and, uh, and you know, a sort of, um, am I allowed to say a, a small swear word here? Yeah, just, yeah, absolutely. I thought to myself, I'll just talk shit on paper. And, <laughs> and so I did that and I got an A and I thought, oh, okay, this is how it works. <laughs> <laughs> and then I ended up getting an A, you know, that year and um, and that's, you know, when the teacher said I should be a writer one day. Um, but then I, I think I, I learned how to write and, and enjoyed it somewhat then as a union delegate and an official because you, you tend to write a bit of persuasive stuff, right, you know, trying to, you know, give them the boss a spray or, you know, trying to um, round up the workers and everything. And so I think that helped along with writing for the lawyers, you know, in, in putting things in chronological form, you know, like uh, enterprise agreements with my Bible. So I read all that and I think that helped as well. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
What about reading fiction? Were you a big reader? Uh, I I remember I picked up a book for the first time. I decided I'm going to read again, and I think it was in my very early 20s. I hadn't read a lot, you know, since I was a kid. And I went to a secondhand bookshop in Darwin Mall, and I, I sort of randomly picked this book, and it was uh, I think it was Tomo and Hawk is the middle book in um, Bryce Courtney's Potato Factory. And so I read that and I really enjoyed it and realised it was a middle of, of three, so I went and got the rest. And, and so since then I've loved reading and, and um, I read uh, as much fiction as I can. Of course, I- in different parts of your life you read non-fiction, you know, like when I wrote my first book I read a lot of non-fiction, um, you know, to, to research, yeah. I want to go back to that, but I just want to tell you a funny story. So in my career, right, you know, when I go out to dinners back in the day when we could go out because we're in lockdown, but, you know, when I was socialising, and this is so typical and this is saying that you're typical, right, Thomas, because when I sit next to somebody at a dinner, if it's a female and they ask me what I do and I say, you know, I work with books and blah, 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 they'll ask me, you know, what what to recommend, what book will I read next, blah, blah, blah. So that's the typical female response that I get. If I sit next to a male, right, the typical response that I get, oh, yeah, it's usually a confession and it's usually I haven't read a book since I was 17 or I haven't read a book since I was 20, you know, and that's, that is really quite common for me. I can absolutely pick what they're going to say to me. Yeah, yeah. You're typical of that. Yeah, that's what I say to my son in, in Dear Son in my letter to him. You need to read, you know. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so talk to me about reading nonfiction researching because I've just, I've recorded a podcast recently with Stan Grant and read his book and, you know, of course, I one, I've got a crush on him. Don't tell him, right? <laughs> <laughs> and two, I love the book. Yeah. Um, so, uh, about fictional, sorry, reading fiction. Reading um, non-fiction. Oh, reading non-fiction. And doing research for your book. Oh, I, I really enjoyed that too, you know, as, uh, for, um, at least a couple of years, I didn't read a fiction because I was getting stuck into non-fiction because I just wanted to learn, you know, and, uh, you know, I think that's the great, I mean, it's not that you don't learn from, from fiction, but, uh. There's so much to learn from people that are sharing things in, in mm. non-fiction books. Uh, you could just read forever and still, you know, have things to to learn. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, continuously. Okay, so what brought you to writing this book? Or it's a, it's an anthology. So what do you, did you write your story first and think, oh, this might be interesting? I might collect a couple of others. Tell me how the book came about. Yeah, so I was at the Perth Writers Festival with um, Tara June Winch, who. Oh. Can I tell you, that's another crush I have. She she is divine. I just love her. So I've recorded a podcast with her twice in person and I just adored her. Yeah, she's very thoughtful, um, you know. Gentle soul. Yeah. And so she was like that with me. It was my first uh, ever, yeah, it was my first ever writers festival and because, uh, you know, I had to, uh, two books out, I think, by then, the Finding the Heart of the Nation and the children's book, Finding Our Heart. And she and I were talking and um, and then at the later on at the drinks we talked again and she said, Thomas, you'd be uh, a good person to write a book about fatherhood because mm-hmm. I've got five kids and obviously we talked about um, family and children and things and and I thought, I, I think I said, oh, I don't know about that, you know, <laughs> because, you know, I'm thinking about my flaws and, you know, all these sorts of things. And 
And uh, But I thought it would be a great idea for someone to do. I said, I'll think about it. So that's how the idea came about. Uh, when What inspired me to actually do it was reading um, James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time, a good friend, uh, Teela Reed lent me the book, uh, and and I was inspired by the, the letter to his nephew, and it sort of clicked. This is how, you know, I could write a book about fatherhood, letters to, to sons, and that's how it came about. Mm. And so did you write your letter first before you invited other people to write? Yeah, so the very first thing I did was um, sit down uh, and start to write a letter to my son, and it was... It was extremely hard, partly I think because, or maybe it's any writing, but but how do I begin this? You know, how do I start this conversation on paper with my son? But once I found the opening lines, which is about, um, which begins basically about a time where uh, he was about nine uh, and I I did not hold his hand in the shopping centre when he wanted to because I said, you know, you're getting a bit old now. And, you know, just how wrong that was. And uh, and so that's how I opened the letter. And once I did that, you know, it sort of opened the floodgates and, and um, away I went. How do you think parenthood has changed you? Uh, it, I, I, I think the first thing that I realised about being a father, how it changed me, uh, was I was a crane driver on the wharfs. And, you know, you're up pretty high, you know, in these big container cranes and everything. And I had no fear until my first child was born. And I, I remember noticing not long after that that I was afraid um, of every bump and, and you know, and thing. And, and so that was one of the things I think, you know, you shift from, you know, wanting to survive and provide for your children I think was the first sort of thing that kicked in for me and, and that's one of the ways I noticed. Uh, but, yeah, I mean... And then the biggest next change is something that I talk about in the book where I realised there is no excuse about, you know, uh, gender roles and um, and how you love your children and the cuddles that you provide and all that sort of stuff. Uh, you know, those sort of lessons that I learnt, wrong lessons that I learnt, um, you know, from, from the way our culture is far too often. Mm. Do you know, um, and I, I don't know if there's a parallel here, and you can correct me if there isn't, but I, my parents were immigrants, right, and they, they came out to Australia in the late 50s to provide their kids a better life. And those kids, we did get a better life. Because of their sacrifice, we got a better life. Do you think that's the same for your children? Do you see that happening in generations of First Nations people? Yeah, certainly. Uh, I think... And one of the reasons my father was harsh, I think, was because he was just surviving, had just come out of the, you know, the Protection Act and complete control by the state. Mm-hmm. Um, myself, you know, grew up, uh, you know, with, with little, you know, because, they, were, you know, mum and dad didn't have a lot, one-income family. And now my children, you know, have so much more than mm-hmm. than I did and, and way more than my father did growing up and, you um, yeah, that's got to continue to improve, I think, for our children, and that's one of the reasons I wrote this book. I think uh, the next way we can improve, as as men certainly, is to improve how we treat women and um, 
you know, the way we behave. And I often think there's a focus um, on First Nations people and the way that men treat women. But do you know, if you look at it, I, I don't know if you've been um, read the Jess Hill book on domestic violence. Yeah. Ah, there you go. It's right behind you. And domestic violence is not uh, unique to First Nations people. It is insidious, you know, and, and, and people often, I hear people say things like that and I think, look around you people. I mean, one of the most startling things I got from that book was that the family was one of my, the most dangerous places for women. Oh. Yeah. yeah, and I should clarify, you know, when I, when I was talking about men's behaviour, I was talking in general. Um, not yeah, talking good, yeah. People, and I think that's important for listeners to hear. Uh, and it's one of the inspirations for Dear Son that, you know, that when I was in school, I was taught that my uh, my forefathers were savages and unintelligent. Sitting next to non-Indigenous kids, they were taught that their you know, forefathers were scientists and explorers, uh, our saviours. Um, and then, you know, like in 2007 as a young man, and, and I, I cover this in my introduction, as a young man, the, the Northern Territory intervention where, you know, precisely what you were talking about, Cheryl, uh, basically a prime minister announces to the country that there needs to be extreme measures because Aboriginal men um, are terrible pedophiles and all these things uh, uniquely. Uh, it was just disgusting. And, you know, talking to some of the people that have contributed to this book, Johnny Little in particular, who lives in Alice Springs, he said in those times it was really hard uh, because you could just be standing at the shop or and, and either himself or, or a young Indigenous man holding his kid, he could see the eyes, you know, um, looking at them suspiciously in that time when, the, when you know, Prime Minister John Howard was saying all, and, and all these awful things about Aboriginal men. You know, these are, these are the stereotypes that I really hope this book uh, breaks through. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a problem... It's a male problem. It is a problem that men in general have. It is in uh, my communities, it's in all communities, and uh, it's got to stop. Absolutely. I'm not going to get political on you because um, I try to curb that. Um, but can I just say I have been saying for years and years John Howard introduced hatred in this country. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Totally agree with you. Yeah. Not just against, you know, First Nations people, not just everything, everything. He used his political power to stay in power through hatred. And that toxicity continues through our politics today. It's a real... It's terrible. So tell me how you got your selection of authors. Was that something you did or did you pitch the idea to a publisher? How did that come about? Uh, No, I did it. um, Of course you did. (laughs) (laughs) No, I just try to think of... uh, people that I thought would have a, a powerful story. That's how I did it. Uh, I wanted to cover a, a bit of the country, you know. Uh, I wasn't too focused on that, but I did want people from, uh, you know, the, the different places um, around the country. And once I had written my first draft, I provided that to the people that I invited with a bit of a spiel about, um, you know, what the book would, would try to do. And the way we went, yeah, most people accepted. Uh, a few didn't, but, um, yeah, it's a, a great collection of, of contributors. You've read the, the letters, have you? Yeah, Sarah? I have. I yeah. haven't finished, but, of course, I was very drawn to it because of your story, but also, you know, my crush, Stan Grant's in it. So. <laughs> 
Well, he's got a beautiful letter, doesn't he? Doesn't he? He's, he's a gentle fantastic. storyteller. Yeah, he is. Yeah. Okay, so I, I can hear some activity in the background. I can hear hit kids. Do you mean to... dogs. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, no, no, I'm, I'm talking about that. I want to know how you balance everything, how you balance writing, working, family of five, you know, dogs in the background. I mean, I often ask authors that story. I mean, it's a juggle, right? Or do you not sleep much? Uh, it's yeah, I love writing. Um, I write at night, and um, you know, I, I've got my union job through the day. Yeah, uh, it gives me space to do these things, you know, because uh, you know, ultimately, this is this is part of um, you know progressing Aboriginal rights, uh, you know, First Nations rights. So, but yeah, my my routine basically is I write best after a coffee, you know, early in the morning, uh, and then. You know, especially if I have a deadline, I get stuck into it at night and work through the night. Yeah. There you go. Well, keep writing because I want to keep reading. Um, you've got a beautiful voice and thank you so much for this collection. It really is gorgeous. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Cheryl. Been a pleasure. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of ebooks and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.